0: question that's where you would do that another place is um on the facebook stream or on the youtube stream both are being monitored and then of course um pastor josh could explain this this next uh way that we're getting questions which is awesome
1: yeah we had uh the students in our student ministry before uh we walked over here we had them write down uh, questions that they have Uh, probably once every couple months we have a question and answer with them and they ask a lot of great questions and if you want to know um and uh, wh- where, where the world is right now, where culture is, uh, one of the best ways to, f- to see where the world is going is just to ask teenagers, you know, what's going on in the world and to pick their brains. Um, and th- they definitely have some good stuff. But we have some scriptural questions today and just general questions. So we're looking forward to answering those as well.
0: Sweet. Pastor Brian, would you like yes. to open us in prayer?
2: Sure will. Okay. Heavenly Father, we look forward to these times, Lord, to come together and uh, to discuss things about the world, about life, about the Christian faith, about scripture, um, all the things that we we encounter so many things throughout our lives that we want answers to these questions, Lord. And so we ask for the spirit of wisdom here, Lord, and ultimately just that you are glorified in what we do. And so we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
0: All right, so is there anybody here who wants to uh, start it off with a, a live question?
3: I'm going to check this real quick. Can you guys hear out of that monitor? Yes.
0: Okay, perfect. Out of one of them. That was the first question.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah only, uh, only the stage left monitor. No.
3: Test one two. Nothing. No. Can you make sure it's on? It is now. <laughs> it
0: is now. Usually it's on. Test one so, two. Can you can hear it now. Yep. Albert, so you got a question? All right, go back to the microphone. And we'll put a a box for you to stand on. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just kidding. I want to hear your question.
4: All right. (laughs) Looks like Carlos has a. Carlos beat him to the Carlos beat him to it. Hey guys, how are you doing? (laughs) Good, how are you doing? Well, all right, good. I'm happy to be here. It's the first time we're here on a question and answer, so we're excited. Sweet. So I got a question, just in case people may be thinking about this. So when scripture says that uh, Jesus was tempted in every way, as we are, um, normally people will say, well, was Jesus able to sin if he's able to be tempted? Mm-hmm. Uh, because sometimes, you know, people have temptations in, in the area of sexuality or pride or different things like that. So how to you tell somebody who says, was he tempted in the way we are as humans? And number two, could he sin because he's tempted?
0: Mm. Either... You guys want to take that one first?
2: Well, I'd say he's, I mean, he's the God man. He, he can't sin, but he was tempted in every way as we are, but he could not sin. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, obviously, I, I would say that uh, definitely he, he felt like he could sin. I mean, if he's fully human, right? There's, that's the whole point. If he's tempted, he's experiencing these things where he feels like he could sin. But because he is the God man, he could not sin
4: so just in case somebody's thinking a follow-up question because he's a god man how is his temptation then real and like ours if he couldn't sin
2: because he's fully human and you think about this he had to endure not sinning for his entire life now that is an endowment in itself that we don't think about think about when you and i when we actually came in temptation we sin and there's a way of like a a release in a sense like oh we sinned he had to endure so i would say in a sense his would be ultimately greater
0: Well, and I would add to that that there's a a key distinction between Jesus' humanity and ours in that he did not have the sin nature that we have because he was not born in Adam like we are, hence hence the virgin birth. And yet he lived – so if you think about it, Adam and Eve could be tempted when they were sinless. They were tempted with what the serpent was tempting them with, autonomy, rebellion, all that kind of stuff. That was the only thing you could possibly be tempted by in the garden. Jesus lived in the same world we live in with the perfect human nature instead of a a, a sin nature like we have. And yet still all the temptations that are in this world were still before him. And so, of course, just like there was an adequate temptation or I guess you could say choice given to Adam and Eve for that one temptation, I think we could say it's fair to, to argue that. An adequate choice, in a sense, was given to Jesus for all the sins that exist in this fallen world. But because he didn't have the sin nature, he wasn't drawn to them like we are. But he was still tempted or tested, same word in the Greek, um, in, in every sense that we are. And uh, So yeah, I, I would say you have to understand that there's a, you can say he was tempted as we are without conceding or removing the fact that he did have a sinless nature. And that's why he was able to go his whole life and never fall.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: Could we say, too, that because he, it doesn't mean that to be human is to be a sinner. And normally we think of sin as being human, but it's only, sin is only true after the fall.
0: Yeah, so what, what theological liberals will say is that if Jesus is human and yet it's normal for humans to sin... Then of course it should have been normal for him to sin, but but it's wrong. Just because all of us sin doesn't mean that's what's normal. What's normal is what we were originally designed for. What's normal is for every single one of us to go our entire existence without sin. That's how we were created. That's humanity in its normal sense. We are all abnormal. We are we are mutated by sin in a sense to all be abnormal. And so of course he was the only normal human to walk this earth.
2: Mm-hmm. Thank He's you. The, the true human.
1: True human. True human. Yes. Yeah. Um, I don't have much else to add other than um, Jesus is called the second Adam for a reason. He came to do what the first Adam failed to do. Um, in Philippians chapter 2, uh, verse 5 says, Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or to be held on to. He didn't cling to his right, but instead he emptied himself by taking on the form of servant, being the born in the likeness of men. And so, in Philippians chapter two, we see uh, the two nature, uh, the two natures of Jesus Christ: the humanity and that He is God. And that He is God in full form. That uh, supersedes His humanity. That that will always be. His humanity was added to His divinity. His His divinity was for from all eternity. Because God is not the author of sin, and God cannot sin, even though he is tempted, Scripture says, that nature was combined with his human nature, and that overrides anything. But to be tempted um, in the same way as us, yes, the the devil offered uh, the kingdoms of the world to him. The devil offered him food when he was hungry after 40 days of fasting. And so uh, we see that those are very real temptations to us where he offers us the th- things that would appeal to our flesh, uh, whether they be physical or spiritual or, uh, mater- or kingdom-oriented. Um, and so uh, the-, the temptations were very real, but he was not able to sin, and therefore he did what humanity was supposed to do. He emptied himself, and Scripture says he became obedient to the point of death He was so obedient and so sinless that he obeyed God even to the point of death, which was a horrible thing for him to have to go through. It says even death on a cross, which the Old Testament says, cursed is anyone who is hanged on a tree. And so our Lord obeyed perfectly, thus showing his superiority to the first Adam um, in doing for us. And we need him to be sinless because he is our righteousness. And that gets counted to us when we trust him to be our savior. So we needed someone who was able to uh, defeat the serpent Who humanity lost to in scene one of the Bible. Jesus came and um, basically went through the same thing. Uh, But rather than in a garden, it was in a wilderness. And it was when Adam and Eve at their best state of mind and best physical, uh, peak physical condition, they failed. And Jesus, in his humblest, after being hungry and mentally drained, was able to defeat the serpent. And so we see the one who would crush the head of the serpent even though the devil would try to wound his heel. So, yeah. Speaking of garden questions, uh, I'm going to ask a teenage question real quick. Sorry, Albert. What happened to the Garden of Eden? This comes from one of our teenagers. What happened to the Garden of Eden?
0: So quick answer on that one, and and I covered this in uh, my series on Genesis 1 through 11. The flood got rid of it. So there's, there's every reason to believe the garden was still there, still present before the flood, because the exit and entrance of it was being guarded by a cherubim and a, and a flashing sword, which refers to the presence of God. And it seems that the you know, the first humans really camped outside of the garden. That's where their altar was. That's where Cain and Abel made uh, their offerings and all that kind of stuff. And it would also make sense, because if you think about all like the pagan myths, You know, they talk about their gods dwelling on a mountain, right, that humans don't have access to. And on that mountain, there's some sort of food that would grant humanity like immortality. Um, But it's outside of our grasp. And And what those are is those are all a corruption of the original truth that there was a garden that we did have immortality. We lost it. It's not a bunch of gods there. It's one God, and it's the tree of life that we were separated from because of our sin. And so before the flood, everybody could see it. And in the book of Ezekiel describes the garden as a mountain as well, right? And so the whole world could see it and they could see that the way was blocked and they could see that the tree was there, right? But after the flood, the whole topography of the earth was just destroyed. So there's no trace of the garden anymore. Uh, but the awesome thing is the book of Revelation tells us when God makes a new earth and a new heaven, it's, it's gonna be back. We'll mm-hmm. be in a better garden. That's also, it's gonna be a world garden that's a world city and the tree of life will be there and its leaves will be for the healing of the nations. And mm-hmm. we will be in the presence of God once again.
1: Yes, the last, uh, it's the third verse from the ending of the, the complete Bible. The three verses uh, to the end and uh, it, it, the scripture does speak about the tree of life. And so um, whatever God did with the original tree of life or if he transplanted it, I, I have no idea. But, or he'll uh, just remake. Yeah, or remake a new one. There is a tree of life there. Um, but that—that's a—that's a good question.
2: It, it
0: definitely was a good question. All right, Albert.
5: <laughs> um, yeah, my question is this: uh, Did not Scripture teach us that we are one body with Christ, with one unity, and that? We are the community of Christ by when we come to church we come to uh, to worship God with one body, one voice and one spirit. But yet when I look around, I see empty seats and my thought is this it's like Where is the rest? of the body of Christ. Isn't that their lives are more important than being in church? It breaks my heart to not see them. And I just pray that they will come back. That's so the all.
0: question though is where are they? Hmm. I think that's more of a question for them than for us, but Pastor Brian, you want to
4: take
2: <laughs> Well, I mean, are you speaking about believers that you know that come to this church that aren't here? what what you mean? Well, they've decided to make a priority of the world over the church. So there's things of life that can kind of, you know, Scripture talks about the parable, right, of of, uh, basically of the the good soil, that kind of thing, right, to where those cares of the world have pulled them away from the body because those have become the priority in their lives, and so ultimately they have to deal with that and May the Lord redeem them from that and help them through that. But that's that's ultimately what happens.
1: Well, Yeah, there's different reasons why people miss on different Sundays. Some are due to sickness. Some are due to work. Some are due to first responder type jobs. You know, firemen, policemen, things like that. Some are on vacation. And then you have uh, some that don't have really good reasons. They would rather sleep in. They would rather not fellowship with the body. They... Maybe they're mad at somebody and they don't want to show their face. Maybe they have a, who knows, some dislike of something. Um, Steve talked about that and has been talking about that as he's been going through Romans 14 and 15, that uh, we're not to let petty things divide us. And sometimes um, people have their own reasons of why they don't want to fellowship consistently with the church. Uh, But a lot of it, it it ultimately is a worship problem if if it's a bad reason. It's a, a lack of love for God and understanding uh, how we are to love the people for whom Christ died. And so there's a lot of imperfection in every church. Ours, if we had to look at all the churches in the world, I would say our church is the chief of sinners, right? Because I know this church better than anyone else, any other churches out there. Just like I'm the chief of sinners, I would say that about our church. We're the chief of sinners as a church. Because we we fellowship together, we know how we wrong each other, those kinds of things, uh, but that doesn't mean that we aren't to love each other and gather together. we're to be people who help sanctify each other and so the purpose of the, one of the purposes of the church is to come together and live together and when we see sin, not to harbor grudges towards it, but if God reveals sin to us and others, we are to use that as an opportunity to help them be sanctified and grow in holiness and so that's one of the purposes of the of the body of Christ. Uh, but some people, they see the issues and the blemishes that the church still has, and they run from it. And they don't, you know, maybe they don't like the leaders. Maybe they don't like the person that sat next to them. Maybe they don't like the kids' program. Who knows? There's all kinds of reasons. But ultimately, uh, not gathering together with the church just shows a lack of love for God. If it's not for one of those reasons of people being sick or out of town, and we understand those things, Right. I'm, I'm gone sometimes, right? Uh, maybe three or four Sundays a year because I'm out of town with my family or, you know, something like that, okay? Hopefully that helps.
0: Yeah, you know, I was reading, uh, so for our small group, we're going through a book called Rediscovering Church, which is really good. And um, in the introduction or maybe the first chapter, um, it more or less tells you that your church actually is perfect. And, and you're like, huh? It's, like it's, per- it's the church that you need, not necessarily the church that you want meaning it's perfect for you. You mean everybody who rubs you the wrong way, that's what you need (laughs) so that you can learn patience, so that you could grow, they could grow, so you could encourage them and so forth. And so I think because people are more focused on what they want than what they need, Mm -hmm. that's going to be one reason why a lot of people, they're just not showing love and they they bow out when they shouldn't. Uh, You know, Pastor Josh is right. You know, you're going to have people vacationing. We happen, God has blessed us and we don't want to... you know, disparage those blessings, but he's put us in a country where a lot of people could afford to get out of town. Most people in the world will never leave more than 20 miles from where they were born. They just don't have what we have. And so it's not wrong for us to take advantage of those blessings and go on family vacations and stuff. And first responders are are literally like healing people and stopping them from dying. Um, and, and again, you know, the Sabbath was allowed to be broken for that in the Old Testament. And so there are legitimate reasons, but you know, come on, any given Sunday we might have 30 to 40 members not here almost any Sunday out of the year. And I doubt that all 30 or 40 of those are legitimate reasons. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's a discipline matter, like somebody will stay up till 2 a.m. on Saturday night watching TV or arguing with their spouse or playing video games. And now all of a sudden that pours into the next day, and now they're too tired to get up to go to church. Um, or if they do come, they come with a bad attitude because they're grumpy because they didn't sleep. And so a lot of it is prioritizing God, prioritizing worship and saying, you know what, I'm going to guard my Saturday so that I can guard my Sunday, you know, and, and, and stuff like that. So there's just a lot of factors in it. But honestly, I just think a lot of it just comes down to people loving this life, this this world and their comfort. And they don't quite understand exactly what the church is. Mm-hmm. Church for so long has operated like many, miniature Billy Graham crusades, where people show up to hear music, hear a message, and then go home, and it's not a church. Nobody's using their gifts at a Billy Graham crusade, except for the rock stars and Billy Graham, right? But if people understood what church is, a temple, a flock, a bride, um, a house, you know, um, all those things, then I think we would see church differently, we would function differently in church, we would use our gifts differently and there'd be a lot less people just being spectators if you're a spectator then it's no big deal for you to miss church in your own mind but when you realize that you're a precious stone upon which all the other stones are being fitted together with then you're only going to miss if there's a good reason for you to miss Mm -hmm. right and so a lot of it's just people either not knowing or not caring what the word says mixed with the people who have a legitimate reason to be gone
1: yeah can i just add one other thing because i love i love our church There's things I don't like about it, right? That's everybody, okay? Because it's it's imperfect. I want to see it in its perfect state, but that doesn't happen. But let me say this. We know the Holy Spirit indwells all true believers. And he has given every true Christian at least one spiritual gift by which God works in and through them to help his church to be holy. Are you with me so far? So when you disengage from the church, you're disengaging from all the people that God has surrounded you to help you become more like Christ. That's why not gathering with the body of Christ is so dangerous and so harmful to your spiritual life. God gave spiritual gifts to equip you and to bring you to maturity. And so you need my gifts, I need your gifts. It's not just the pastor's gifts or the elders' gifts that bless the people. I I need you to I need your gift of patience, I need your gift of hospitality, I need your gift of faith, whatever gift God has given you, a service Whatever it is, even teaching, uh, encouragement, I, I need those things to become a better Christian. So I need you, you need me, you need each other. And so to separate from that, you've really separated yourself from a huge part of the love of God. And you're missing out on all the grace that God has for you. So many people pray, God, help me, help me, help me. One of the places that God helps is through his body.
5: Okay? Good question. All right,
0: Frank.
6: Good evening, oh, pastors. Or you to... No, no, no. Oh, go ahead. We'll get another. You're yep. up, Frank. You. Okay. Thanks. Good evening, pastors. Um, in my daily reading, I came across First King fifteen, and in verse five, it says right here: "For David did what was right in the Lord's sight, and he did not turn aside from anything he had commanded him all the days of his life, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite." Uh, could you explain that, because Kind of sounds like that, well, you know, David only broke one command, um, commandment. Um, we, we know that he had other sins as well. I was wondering if that is just a comparison to the king of Judah, or can you explain it?
2: <laughs> yeah. Oh, you want to go first? No, I, I think what you said is, is part of that. I mean, it's to show that obviously David had sinned. He sinned regularly, but uh, I think it's what you're, right, you're saying, you're making the distinction between previous as well. But also, I mean, the thing is, we, we look at this text, and you know, David was a man after God's own heart, and Scripture talks about that. And yet we know David's a sinner, so what does that mean? What does that really mean? And it comes out to having the contrite heart. right? Even though David, he knew he was a sinner, he would say, like, you know, in, in, in the Psalms, talk about his grievous sin, but yet God wiped him clean, and he knew that. And so it's the heart towards God, that's why he was seen as a God after, after his own heart. Here, just making the distinction that, yes, that he did, actually did sin, and they're comparing him to the previous, to the other one.
6: So, could it also be that because you know he didn't confess that particular sin right away, it took him some time, and he had to be confronted that that maybe was the reason why they say, except in the matter of Uriah? Just wondering. You, you know,
1: I think... Um, uh, one of the things I always learned is to try to read verses before and after, if, especially if I'm not super familiar with the passage, mm-hmm. just to get a wider context. I think uh, a couple of verses before will help us to see what it means when it says that he did not turn aside from anything. Um, in the verse 1, it says, In the 18th year of, the, of King Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, Abijam, began to reign over Judah. He reigned three years in Jerusalem. So it's just going through some stuff right here, but his mother's name was Mekah, the daughter of Abishalom. And he walked, he walked in all the sins of his father that his father did before him. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord, his God, as a servant, David, his father. And then it goes on to explain David. So there's a manner in which the previous guy was walking in sins, not walking after the Lord, where we see David, it says he did not turn from anything, meaning he he did the opposite of what this previous guy was doing in that he walked in the ways of God. It didn't mean he didn't have other sins or that he was completely sanctified from that point. It wasn't like David was glorified, but that he continued to walk. And if he stumbled, he kept he got up and kept walking. Versus continually walking. It's like where First John tells us that whoever uh, um, is a true believer will not walk in darkness; they, they will walk in the light. And so uh, those principles span over all of of, of uh, those who believe in, in the Lord and come to him for faith. So Old Testament, New Testament, th- that's just a general principle that applies. Okay.
0: And, and what I would add to that is, okay, so all that is correct, right? Comparatively to the other kings, um, the big thing against him would be, you know, what he did with Bathsheba and what he did to Uriah. I also think we have to understand everything in the Old Testament historical narratives is being filtered through the lens of the Mosaic Covenant. It just is, right? And so Deuteronomy specifies the rules for the king, right? It also specifies like what kind of sins should get you killed, like you should be executed for. Adultery and murder, you're supposed to be executed on the spot. A lot of the other sins David did would not carry the death penalty. Furthermore, the, the laws that were written for the king, um, other than I guess you could say the acquisition of more than one wife, um, David wasn't guilty of those like Solomon was, and that's why the, the the great collapse of the kingdom actually happens with Solomon. So when you think about it, as far as the law is concerned, David was a good king except on that one point. That one point, he should have been killed. He should have lost the kingdom and all that. But God chose to forgive him because of all the qualities that Pastor Brian said. He was a man after God's own heart. And of course, God has mercy on whom he'll have mercy. And he uh, will have compassion on whom he'll have compassion. So I think it's all that. But also, we can't forget that. All that is being written with Deuteronomy in mind. And so you compare his kingship to what Deuteronomy says versus the other kings. This is a statement that's not hyperbolic. It's actually a true statement. And so, uh, yeah, that's all I would add.
2: Okay. Thank you.
0: Thank you, brother.
1: All right, let me, this should be a shorter one. Let me ask real quick. One of our teenagers asked this. Did hell always exist or did God create it after the fall?
0: Well, Pastor Brian's our doctrine of God guy. And so, could anything have always existed other than God?
2: No. Nope. <laughs> no, hell is a created place, by all means. And God sustains it. And there will be people that go there, and God will sustain them there in hell. And it's a very scary, scary idea to, to think about that it is, is, is a real, as what we see here, it is real as can be. It should terrify us and it should make us want to share the gospel. Yeah, I
1: think the question might lean more towards. Did God create it within the six-day creation, and then after the fall? That, that seems to me the way this is being asked. Not not that it was eternal like God. Got it, yeah. But did hell, it, has a, hell always existed since creation, or was it created after the fall?
0: Got it. So, based on that, the first way the question was being interpreted, just for all future reference, if the question is, has such always existed, and that such is something other than God, the answer is always no. <laughs> Only God has always existed, but... Uh, based on, on how Pastor Josh is saying the question most likely was intended, um, we have to take Genesis 1 for what it says. Everything that was created was created in those six days. After that, God rests, and his creation in in the state of rest is more through, well, his work, right, isn't special creation anymore, where he's creating new things out of nothing. Mm-hmm. Now God's work is providence, where he more or less is governing and managing what already exists and using it. But everything that that exists that was like had to be made out of nothing was made in those six days mm-hmm. and, and Matthew does tell us in Matthew 25 Jesus tells us in the parable of the sheep and the goats that uh, hell was made in preparation for Satan and his fallen angels and those who will be lost and so God being omnipotent and omniscient knew all that was going to happen and so yeah during that creation week he already had the place set up for which he would uh, ultimately send them
2: but the question asked about
0: it did? Yeah,
2: right, right, Josh? After the fall. Was it created after, after the fall? the fall. Yeah.
0: Yeah, so I don't think it could have been, right? I think yeah. it was. So sometimes people ask, like, if animals weren't supposed to eat each other, then, like, why do saber-toothed tigers have these big old saber <laughs> teeth, you know? And, and, you know, again, some of that was answered in Genesis. Some of it's just sheer adaptation. Another fact is, even with sharp teeth, you could still eat vegetables. So it doesn't mean that you had to eat meat. And, you know, some of it will be with the anticipation God knew what was going to happen. So some of this was built into the genetic code. Likewise, in anticipation, God knew exactly what was going to happen. He knew the fall was going to happen. It was part of the plan because Christ was slain before the foundation of the world, right? And all this gets God more glory. And so, of course, hell would have been made before a single person fell and would have earned their spot there, if
2: you will. So. I think we're getting to the infra and superlapsarian. I case. didn't want to mention that because this was a that's teenager's the, question. That, we're going to start
0: talking Latin in a moment, <laughs> and then Carlos would correct our pronunciation. But, uh, you know, <laughs> but good question.
1: All right, it looks like Alina has a question.
6: Hi. Um, okay, it's kind of a double question. Um, so last Wednesday in Genesis 3, you had said that Eve disobeyed, but Adam, and i paraphrase because I don't remember, but Adam, like, chose it. And I don't understand what that meant.
0: Yeah, yeah. So in, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, it says Adam wasn't deceived, but Eve was deceived, right? So then we go back to the garden and we look at the whole scenario where the serpent was talking to Eve. And so what that lets us know is that she legitimately got, I guess you could say, tricked by him, Bam, deceived, bamboozled. bamboozled. Uh, more or less, she became convinced of the lie that he told, whereas if Adam wasn't deceived but it says Adam was there with his wife and ate as well, then it means that he wasn't tricked, but he chose to eat knowing that what the serpent said can't ultimately be true. Um, so there's a lot of theories as to why Adam would eat. I think that he wanted the independence from God. Um, I don't think he thought for a second it would have made him like God, but says Eve was deceived. So I think what Paul's point is is that... Um, one reason that you have a distinction between men and women in our roles is because of what happened there in the beginning. But I think theologically we would say that Adam's sin was worse. You know, because if if you do something wrong because you got tricked, that's bad. But if you were not tricked and you know what you're doing and you're doing it with a high hand, that's even worse. And I think that's one more reason why death entered the world through Adam, you know, and and not Eve. Like right when she ate, it's not like all of a sudden the curse came in. It was after he did.
2: And he tried to make her a scapegoat.
0: And then, yeah, bored, yeah. it was the woman, you know. So that's, um, yeah, that's even worse. Yeah, cowardly man.
6: So that kind of leads into my uh, second question. Um, I've, I've always heard of the age of accountability, right? Um, and it makes sense to me, but I've never seen that anywhere in Scripture.
0: Good question. So I, I do think there's, so when it comes to age of accountability, there's not going to be a verse that says this, It like 13 is the age of accountability, right? You're not going to find anything like that, but you can find the concept of it. And so one verse that I always go to will be uh, um, Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse uh, 34, uh, or was it 39? Yeah, verse 39 of Deuteronomy chapter 1. So God punished the whole generation of wicked Israelites for um, rebelling uh, with the, the bad report of the 12 spies. And so they said, our children are going to be devoured and, and so forth, and, and so God punished them says, hey... That whole generation is not going to make it, but the children will get to go in. And then here's what he says in verse 39. He says, your children whom you said would be plunder, your sons who don't yet know good from evil will enter there and I will give them the land and they will take possession of it. So if you notice how God himself described their kids, they don't know good and evil yet. Okay, they're born with the sin nature, but they haven't reached that age where they know good and evil, and you guys sinned, you're not going to enter the promised land, but those ones who did not yet know the difference between good and evil, they're the ones who are going to get to enter the promised land. So I think a passage like that establishes that there is, for each person, a point in time when they are able to understand the difference from good and evil, and that's when they become accountable. Thank you. Yeah, no problem.
4: All right,
1: Nyla, you got a question?
6: So let's say you have this pri- like, um, this trans or gay friend. How would you approach them with the gospel?
2: Mm, like anybody else. <laughs> no, I don't know. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's the one thing that we're... People that are, that are gay or trans, they're, they're ready with their gloves on, on questions like that. And the reality is, they're like anybody else. They've lied, they've stolen, they've cheated, right? They're like anybody else that has a sin issue that they need Christ. And so I think it's wise to not go for that particular sin. It's to go for the things to get them to admit on, right? Have you lied? Have you stolen? And and recognize those things It's because of those reasons, because you've sinned against a holy God for all these sins, right? You are accountable to him. Because a lot of times you go for that sin, you kind of, in a sense, paint the picture that that is the reason why they are not, they can't be a believer or they're not a good person, though they're not, they aren't a good person, but going for that sin specifically makes it much more challenging.
0: Especially since they identify themselves yes. by that sin. They think you're attacking who... Their identity. Yeah, who they are. Now, of course, no sin is our identity. Correct. It's like, you know, it's, it's kind of weird like how sometimes people say, well, I'm depressed or I, you know, um, they'll, they'll label themselves by their sin. But nobody says, I am cancer. Yes. Or, you know, I am heart attack.
2: I don't identify that as a behavior.
0: Yeah, exactly. And so I think that's right. And I'd also say like when it, you got to treat people like they're people made in the image of God, yes. worthy of dignity, even if they're rebelling against God. I mean, this is probably the greatest form of rebellion imaginable right now, because what it's doing is it's saying, one, God is wrong in how he created everything. Right. And then number two, it, it's more or less like God built society to work off of the binary and all for all of history nobody's ever questioned the binary. All of a sudden, within the last five years, everybody's acting now like the binary is not real, and you've got this spectrum of infinite fluidity. And if people follow that to its logical conclusion, everything's going to fall apart. It just Mm -hmm. will. Mm -hmm. And so you can't escape reality. I can say that I am bulletproof as much as I want, and I can identify myself as bulletproof man. Soon as one of you empty a clip into me, reality wins. Not how I tried to identify myself. Now, one more thing to add to this. um, A lot of you guys know that I had a transgender chaplain assistant years ago in the Army. So she's a female biologically, but she identified as a male. And she was engaged to another female that identified as a male. So they thought they were two homosexual males. When really they were two homosexual females. It gets very confusing And then, you know, this one eventually started to transition through the um, hormone treatments and all that. And so I'm thinking like, wait a minute, here I am, a man of God in the army. And the person who's wanting to protect me, you know, and be part of ministry is somebody who's rebelling against God. And so at first I'm thinking like, all right, um, is this going to be what gets me kicked out of the military? (laughs) You know, because, uh, you know, I'm not going to do the pronoun hospitality because I believe that's lying. If this person says, I want you to call me. He, when I believed, you know, God clearly made this person female, um, I'm not gonna do that because it would be a lie. But at the same time, I wasn't a jerk about it. So I came to an understanding. I told the soldier, I said, look, I can't do that because I'm convinced that God says that's wrong. But I don't wanna be a jerk to you. And so can we meet in the middle where I just tried to avoid pronouns altogether and I call you rank and last name, you know? And then she was like, yeah, that's fine. And I said, and by the way, because we speak, you know, with pronouns, I'm gonna say she sometimes. But I just want you to know that I'm not doing that to be a jerk. It's just slipping out. But every time I'm thinking about it, I'm gonna call you rank and last name. And so what happened is over the course of time, um, me and her, we we built a friendship. There was a lot of mutual respect. Um, she was like four foot eleven. There's no way this kid was gonna keep me alive in war, given that I'm six foot and she was being bullied by other, uh, other chaplain assistants. And so I started teaching her a little bit of Krav Maga. I'm like, hey, this isn't just so you could save me. You're not gonna be able to save me. I can't even lift you up to block bullets for me. You're so small. I'm like, so this is for you to be able to protect yourself. And so investing in her and being a friend to her, and even there were times where she would, because it was interesting, she had me as, well, her main chaplain was the guy under me, but I was his supervisor and we're in the same office. So I worked with her as much as he did. He was one of those guys who would tell her what she wants to hear, the affirming guy. She didn't have any respect for him. The interesting thing was at the end of the day, she knew whatever I was gonna tell her was straight from my heart and what I believed is in the word. And she wanted to hear that. And I remember a big breakthrough came when we were in the field for 21 days and I was doing a Bible study for the soldiers in my unit and we're going through Romans. And I remember when I was going through Romans 1, where it talks about the people ex- exchanging the truth for, the, for a lie and, uh, you know, homosexuality and all that. Everybody got all, like, nervous, and they were looking at her, like, I can't believe your chaplain's saying this. And then she just rebuked them all. She's like, what are you all looking at me for? She's like, that's the word of God. God is right. I'm wrong. I don't know what to do with that, but he's right. I'm wrong. Don't look at the chaplain. What he's saying is from the word. And then I was like, dang, that was awesome we wouldn't have got there on the first day of our relationship. That was like two years in. So what I'm saying is the long game. And we had some really good one-on-one heart-to-hearts where she came to understand that, yes, this was wrong. And, you know, I brought up points like, hey, were you horrifically abused, right? Um, Because, and I said, and given that you're part of this community, where most of the people who are trans also in their life horrifically abused in horrible ways. And she said... And keep in mind, she rolled in this crowd. She used to be part of the rallies. She said of the hundreds of trans people she knew, she didn't know anyone that did not have some huge traumatic experience as a child. And so, you know, that got her thinking, like, wait a minute. If something happened to us that broke us, why would we be thinking this is natural? Why would we be thinking this is good? This all stems from something that happened to us. And and so I said, you're on the right track. And so there were multiple points where she was uh, ready to give it up. Um, but then got scared at the last moment and kept with it. And so this went on for years. And guess what? My job's not to be a jerk about it. Like, when are you going to repent? My job's to be there praying for her, you know, being that, that, that friend, that mentor. Um, and the interesting thing is, um, not long after that, she started to be attracted to real men. Not women that think they're men, but real men. And she eventually married one. Um, now, she's got all the damage from the hormone treatments, And I don't think she's gone off the hormones yet, but about every six months, she'll send me a giant text saying that God's convicted her. She knows she needs to get off of this. And she's, I'm the only one that she'll trust on this because her pastor will tell her she's fine, you know? And uh, and so I'll write her the biblical response. And then again, she's like on the edge of doing what's right, but there's a little bit of fear that's holding her back. I'll keep answering her the same way for the next 50 years if I have to. I'm not going to get to that point where I say, you know what, I already told you. You didn't listen. I'm tired of you. No, I care about her soul. So I think just when it comes to folks like that, care about them as people, speak the truth uncompromisingly, but show that you you love them and where you can meet them in the middle that doesn't make you compromise this, then do so. That's what's going to get them to start listening to you and then listen to the fact that, as Pastor Brian said, it's not just that they're dealing with. They're sinners in a million other ways as well. And so hopefully that helps. Anything
1: you want to add? To that, brother? Um, it's importantly, it's, it's very important to, to love those who don't know Christ. Because we are called to exemplify the love of God, the patience of God, the kindness, the mercy, the grace, right? Everything, the faithfulness, everything that God is. And many times Christians get overly fixated on this to where, um, like, of course, all sin is bad. Um, and our society has rallied for this particular sin. You see it on TV. Um, but sometimes we it's, we almost feel like it's insurmountable, right? And so we feel like we have to, I don't know, be like superhuman or something when talking to people who identify as uh, homosexual or transgender or, you know, they're, who knows, any number of things that they might label themselves. But ultimately when we talk to people, it doesn't matter who it is, we want to start with the idea that God created everybody. And, and you want to help people to acknowledge that. If they don't acknowledge that, then they're never going to acknowledge that they're sinning in any way before God. doesn't matter what form that sin takes. And so that's one of the reasons why Genesis starts the way it does. It starts with the fact that God made us. And God made us in his image. In the irony of the temptation that we went, we went back to in, in Genesis uh, where Satan tempted, as he said, if you eat this, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The irony is that they were already made like God. And Satan tricked them into thinking that there was a better version of themselves than what God had already created them in. And so that's what all sin is. It, I'm a better version of me if I do this or if I don't do that, if I alter myself in some way. I, I don't think the way that God made me is the perfect the way and the right way. And therefore, we, we, cha- we try to change ourselves. And we don't look at us uh, as image bearers of God. And so if, uh, uh, so, when talking to people of all sin, or even people who um, sin with identity issues, it's, it's important to help them to see that God is the one who made them, and he made them in a beautiful way. And when we try to alter that in any way whatsoever, we're not acknowledging the creator who made us for a purpose. In, in the beginning, he made them male and female, And God had a reason for that. And if you've been listening to the sermons through Malachi, um, we've been explaining the purpose of marriage, which is a temporary thing here on earth, which is why God made male and female. So the entire race of humanity would have a picture of Christ's eternal love for his church. And so it's a gospel issue. It's not a cultural issue. It's not a personal issue. It really is a gospel issue. Marriage is meant for all people, and it's meant to teach us all about Christ's eternal union with the church for whom he died and for whom he loves and for whom he cares for. And so we don't want that picture distorted, and it gets distorted by two guys marrying each other or by two girls marrying each other or by someone who's a male then identifying as a female. Um, It it just gets distorted because that's, that's not the way God created humanity. But again, if people don't acknowledge that God created them, then they're not going to listen to anything else. And so we have to share with them who God is and how God made us. And we start there, and if they can acknowledge that, well, then we've made at least a little, you know, maybe you've got your big toe in the door, and the crack is open. There's a little light there that just allows you to continue to share the redemption story of Scripture and how God has, um, God has come down to us in the form of uh, humanity in order to die for us and rise again and bring us to himself. And so these are, these are gospel issues that Satan fights against. And one of the ways he fights against is, he again, he lies to humanity. He lies to the culture. He lies to people. And he gets them to say, oh, there's, there's something better out there that God doesn't want you to have. And that better is you changing your identity, you changing your sexuality, you not doing what God made you for, and God is lying to you. And so that's, that's really the heart of all sin, but that's where a lot of this ties in uh, to the gospel. So hopefully that helps. I would say you love them, you serve them, and um, just, like you, just like you would care for your church, you take that love. This is where you practice those things, and you go on to the world, and you love sinners, and you pray for them. And you don't, uh, you don't disparage them, you don't act holier than them, because such were some of you, Scripture says. We used to be sinners under the wrath of God and the Lord graciously awoken us to his salvation. And so such were some of us. And so we pray for all sinners. Um, but anyway, it's just, it, it, it just takes a tender heart. And if you look at it through the eyes of political uh, thinking, you're just going to come at people with hate. You're gonna. It's just, that's not the lens that you should be looking at sinners through. You should be looking at them through the, with the eyes of Christ and the eyes of God.
0: Two more things that, forgot because my part was long anyway. One pers- perfect person to ask about this is John Weigel um, because when he was still in high school, he actually brought a girl out of that. So um, there, there was a girl who, and I was, you know, a high school teacher then. Um, she was identifying as, as a male <clears throat> and her and John were in the school band together. And John just made a friendship with her. And he'll tell you, it, he put hours into that friendship eventually she trusted him enough to go to Christian Club, which he was president of. And she was terrified the first time she went. Um, she even had this little stuffed animal that she would pet when she was anxious. And so you saw her the whole time there just, <laughs> I was thinking, okay, but that's what she was doing. But she didn't realize, wow, these people didn't bite my head off. And so then she went back the next time and the next time and the next time. And then, you know, he just kept building that relationship. And then I remember one day in class, um, she told me to call her by her, her girl name again. And I'm like, this is awesome. And then the next year, she was a treasurer of the Christian club. Mm-hmm. And so um, so it just took time. It took loving the person. That was the first point that I wanted to bring up. And then the second point is, um, I think the church has failed really bad at this. And we have to understand exactly what's going on in some sense in the mind of the person that's struggling with this kind of dysphoria. And, and here's the thing. They think they were born wrong. And so they think they need to be born again. Which what's interesting is they already have that impulse You know, part of the issue for us as evangelists is to get somebody to realize they need to be born again. This is a person who already thinks that they they were born wrong, right? And so they try to, and they have this community that accepts them no matter what. And if they knock on the typical church's door, get out of here, you're not welcome here. You're a sinner, you're gonna burn in hell, right? And so we have the new birth, which will correct all that stuff that's within them and get them to see things God's way. But we close the door but then there's a bunch of surgeons out there. We can help you. We can give you the new birth. You know, what kind of insurance do you have? You know, and they'll give them hormones. They'll mutilate their body. When you actually research what the gender transition surgery is, oh my goodness, this is, this is the muti- uh, mutil- uh, mutilation of flesh. Um, but the bottom line is they got their surgeons who could give them their fake new birth, and then they got a community, right? And one thing we could be as a community that loves people and then also tells them about the new birth. And let this be a correction for us as American Christians. And here's what I mean by this. Because America for the longest time had a Christian, I guess, veneer. Like the, the overall culture seemed to be Christian. When sinful things like homosexuality or transgenderism and all that stuff started, uh, you know, coming out of the closet, for lack of a better term. We reacted like this is our turf. Not in our land, Right? No stinking way. And so it became part of the culture war rather than something where we ministered to people. And it's because we deceived ourselves into thinking that this was ever our land, right? We're in the city of man until we reach the city of God. And this world will never be the city of God. So we treated them as invaders rather than seeing things as they really were that we had this, this veneer, this fog that we felt protected and comfortable under. But that's going away. And paganism is making a full comeback. And so if we would have realized from the beginning, we're on their turf. We've always been in the city of man. We've always been on their turf. Then maybe we would have responded to them differently. Rather than like enemies, we would have responded to them like evangelists. So let that be something that just maybe sticks in all of our minds for how we should be dealing with people.
1: Luke, you got a question?
3: I'm actually asking a question on behalf of YouTube chat. From Chris, this might be for Steve because it's off of what you preached on um, Revelation 7-4. So a little eschatology here. Um, 100, no. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> Revelation 7 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Is this in reference to the second coming and our church? Um, Follow-up, he says. also if there is any application, I'm assuming for us as believers. Um, and then he says... Um, currently several are claiming to be the tribe in our current I think he meant society. Um, what does the Bible say about this claim?
0: So if you're talking about the black Hebrew Israelites, they are not Israelites. Um, but to, to go to, to this, um, you know, for there's two different ways you could take this. Either this is talking about literal Jews who are going to come to Jesus during the Great Tribulation, or this is talking about the church. Um, and there's reasons in the text that um, make me lean to it, talking about the church. Um, for, for one, this is an interlude in the book of Revelation, so it's not continuing the forward momentum of the seals and the trumpets and so forth. It's hitting the pause button and answering a question. Chapter 6 ended with the question of who can stand, and chapter 7 answers only those who have the seal of God. right? And so it's talking about who's going to survive the, the tribulation, which I think, in many respects, we've been in the tribulation since Christ's resurrection, But there will be a final portion of it that heats up. But this is just talking about the tribulation in general. uh, Because the seals, if you compare them to Matthew 24, are talking about the things that Jesus says that aren't quite yet the end. Um, So again, this is the stuff that happens throughout the entire church age. And so you look at this list of the 12 tribes. It's very peculiar. It has the tribe of Joseph rather than Ephraim and Manasseh. It includes Mm -hmm. Levi um, when Levi is not counted as one of the 12 usually. Um, so it, it's just, it, it's very, very strange. And then there's, there's a key, key thing to, uh, I guess you could say an interpretive key to revelation. John will often say, I heard, and then later he'll say, I saw, and what he hears and what he sees is the same thing. So back in chapter one, he says, I heard the voice of rushing waters behind me, the sound of many trumpets, which we know from the, based on old Testament descriptions, that's the voice of God. That's what he hears. And then he says, but I looked and I saw one like the Son of Man. So he hears God, he sees Jesus. What does that tell you? Jesus is God. Then you get to, to chapter four, and John's in heaven, or chapter five, excuse me, and he's crying because nobody's worthy to open the seal. And then they say, behold. He says, I heard. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. That's what he hears. And then he says, I turned and saw a lamb that was slain. Right? The lion of Judah and the lamb that was slain, same person, Jesus. If you look at chapter seven, after this, uh, or he says, uh, he says, and I heard in verse four, I heard the number sealed, one hundred forty-four thousand. Then you skip down to verse nine. After this, I looked or I saw, and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number before the throne of God. So if John is following the same pattern that he does everything else that he does everywhere else in Revelation, where what he sees and hears are the same thing, he heard one hundred forty-four thousand of Israel, but he saw all the saved Of all time from every nation, tribe, and tongue. So I think what this chapter is getting at is it's describing all believers as Israel, not in a replacement sense, because remember what Romans says. You Gentiles, when you believe, you're added into Israel, and you you inherit Israel's promises, and you're treated as if you're part of the Commonwealth of Israel, not as a replacement, but as an addition. And so this is just a beautiful description that confirms that. Um, So hopefully that answers the question.
1: All right. Let me ask one from a teenager, real quick. This it's going to seem real simple, but I'm going to um, ask it differently. What is two plus two? All right. It's, <laughs> but the, what I want to get at is, we know that uh, we know uh, that there's truth and there's untruth. There's things that are right um, and objective, and there's things that are subjective. So how how do we know what truth is? Obviously, somebody can say two plus two is five, as I just heard, but we know that isn't true. Hmm. Correct? I would hope you'd say correct. Yeah. All right. But uh, <laughs> what is what is truth?
0: Pastor Brian. Okay.
2: <laughs> <laughs> what is truth? Who asked that? Uh, no, I don't. I don't mean. I'm sorry. Oh. <laughs> scripture. Yeah. Oh. Pilate. <laughs> Pilot. Yes. Uh, it, it's yes. in
1: uh, Matthew eighteen. Yes, I'm sorry. Uh, That'd, be so, Johnny, That'd be, Johnny be so funny
0: if you're like, "Who asked that?" He's like, "Ananias," you know. Because
1: yeah, <laughs> <Right. laughs> yeah. uh, the, the yes, Pilate asked it as uh, Jesus was on trial. What is truth?
2: Yeah, what is truth? I mean, we live in an age where truth has become very subjective to a lot of people, right? It's not what you know, what you believe is true, and I believe is true. But we know that can't be the case. There can't be competing competing truths, if we say right, like two plus two. It's always going to be for no matter, no matter what. Those that think differently, what happens, what happens when they apply it? Their life does not work out, right? So we look at Scripture knowing it's God's word. We know that God created us, we're made in his image. Uh, we know his thoughts after him. We have a, there's a reality that he's given to us that we can actually recognize what is true as a, as a presupposition. What it means is that beforehand we know that this is true. And How we know we compare it to one, we, we know what it is, and we compare it to counterfeits, the things that try to be portrayed as truth, and they don't match up. So, um, I guess to say to what is truth, I would say, oh, to so me, Scripture says that you know, Christ is the way of life, right? He is, he is truth. And so, I would say that's, um, and I, I can't really define it like a, in a snappy definition, but I mean, you got a snappy definition?
0: Well, you know, if we're going to talk like apologists, th- there's different, I guess you could say, um, theories of truth. Like the correspondence yes, theory, correspondence truth theory. corresponds to reality. So, for example, if somebody said that gravity falls at 7 meters per second squared, but somebody else says, no, the acceleration due to gravity is 9.98 uh, sec- meters per second squared, you test it and it's the second one. doesn't matter what the first person says, the second one corresponds to reality. Um, the other theory is the coherence theory of truth, that truth won't contradict itself, it'll cohere, mm-hmm. it'll hold together, right? And so all those are doing is describing what truth is. Even if people deny that they believe in truth, they operate as if it exists. Gotcha. And and based on what gotcha. they operate on, it does fit with those theories, right? And so if somebody says, I don't believe there's a such thing as truth about right or wrong, watch what happens when you steal that person's wallet. Mm-hmm. They yeah. call the cops. They want you to be prosecuted as yeah. if you've done something wrong. Yeah. Or the, the college professor that says, there's no moral truth. Yeah. Okay cheat on the final exam right in front of them and see what happens. Yeah. Right, All of a sudden, truth becomes real. Yeah. And you did something wrong, and you deserve to be expelled yeah. because yeah. you cheated. So, yeah, truth, it corresponds to reality. And as Pastor Brian said, truth is a person. Jesus said, I am the truth, the, the way, the truth, and the life. Um, obviously, truth is what it is because it corresponds to God himself who is truth. We and anything that contradicts out. him is untrue.
1: And to make the statement that there is no truth is a contradictory statement. It's an illogical statement because that person is saying it's, yeah. it's, it's true that there is no truth. Do you, do you understand that question? There is no truth. You're making a truth. You're, you're trying to say that something is true. And that true statement is there is no truth. So there's at least one true thing <laughs> if, if that statement is true. But that statement, therefore, just blows up in itself um, if you try to say that there is no truth. So we can, we can reason logically, well, then there is truth. And then we have to understand where truth comes from. And truth is our God. When Jesus said he is the way and the truth, he wasn't joking. When uh, he said, for this purpose I was born, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who has well the truth listens to my voice. Jesus came to bear witness to the truth. The Father bears witness to Jesus. Jesus is the truth. And so um, I'm not speaking mathematically or scientifically, although all those things come from God. The laws of nature, the laws of mathematics and geometry and physics, those all come from a God. And he told us to have dominion over this world, meaning we should be able to understand the way this world functions. And so we can see true things. We can see weather patterns and discern how water evaporates and goes up into clouds and it comes back down. And we can say, oh, okay, this is true how this functions. And we can study the digestive system and see how food goes in and it gets broken down and you know you know what happens after food goes in you, all right? It comes out of you and you can understand these things. Why? Because we know that there's things that that, that we can observe and test because that's the world that God made us in. And so... Christians above all should be people who study creation, who study science, who study math because all of that is understanding the creation that God made and it's all points to his glory. Therefore, the study of these things, the study of truth, the pursuit of truth is really the pursuit of God. Okay? So, sciences aren't ends to themselves. They're all meant to lead us to God. And so, when you study physics, chemistry, biology, it's there to see how awesome your God is. Okay? And, He's the truth. And that's why we can understand these things and build great buildings and know that hopefully they're not going to collapse and we can study the way electronics work and figure out how to make a device like this that sends sound through a cable and it comes through speakers and all of a sudden it's transmitted through the air and online because people studied creation whether they were believers or not. And so there's a common grace that's given to all of humanity that we can know true things. And the people that deny truth all they're doing is lying to themselves so that they have an, an out to do whatever it is that they want to do. That, that's if, really the bottom line of untruth. Or there's, just, no, I, or there's I, no such thing as truth, I should say. Yeah, I, and I want to
2: tie it back into the whole transgender discussion. I mean, think about it. You're actually being told to deny, deny reality. When someone says that they are a boy, but clearly they're, they're a female and vice versa, you agreeing with that, it does not feel right. Because actually you're, you're going along with the denying the reality this person is actually a female. And that's why there's so much chaos. That's why there's so much controversy with it because this, even the language itself—you have to change language, try to manipulate it to actually go against what is true—and it doesn't feel right. God made us with a purpose. He made us. He designed us with a, a, a purpose to fulfill individually and as male and female, and He made us that way. And so when you actually told that the person is not what they are biologically, as God made them, it just does not, you know, comport with reality. And that's why it just feels so strange.
0: And if you want to simplify it even more, the opposite of truth is lying, right? Mm-hmm. And so everything that, so what Pastor Brian's getting at is people are asking you to believe a lie. Well, how do lies usually work when somebody wants to double down on it? You know, so they lie about one thing, and then people call them out on it. They usually create a network of lies. The lie gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and there's more lies to it. And so fallen humanity does the same thing. So, of course, clearly somebody who's two X chromosomes is a female. And, and so they'd be like, yes. But there, don't you know, you ignorant Christian, that there's a difference between biological sex and gender? Sex is biological, gender is social. Yeah, how do you know that? Who says? Oh, social scientists, for how long? Oh, 40 years. And what's their proof of that? Oh, none. Right? So what happens is like, yeah, they'll, they'll come up with an extra category, right? Well, we're going to call gender, we're going to make gender social and sex biological, and then by doing that, they think they create an escape. All that's doing is adding another lie to the first lie. And then when you call that one out, there'll be, a, again, it's just a pyramid of lies. That's what people, that's what a little kid does when he gets caught stealing a cookie. And that's what the world does um, when it comes to stuff like this. And the only thing I'll add on the, the truth thing is in so you guys know that contradictions are bad, right? <laughs> uh, truth doesn't contradict. But not all contradictions are equal. Some are worse than others, and the worst kind of contradiction is the contradiction where if it's true, then it's false. And if somebody says that there is no truth, they've committed that contradiction because if there is no truth, then it's true that there's no truth. Therefore, there is something that's true that there is no truth, and it keeps going in circles until it blows up, right? And so if it's true, it's false. It's the worst kind of contradiction imaginable. So it can't be true. Yeah. Luke. All right, so
2: um, good that you touched on contradictions. Um, so a couple of weeks back, I had a conversation with an atheist on one of the reform groups, and basically he was trying to show the contradictions in Reformed theology through the Bible. And he specifically brought up uh, Psalm 69 and Revelation 3, where it's referring to the names being blotted out in the Lamb's Book of Life. So basically... Um, I had already answered it, but I just wanted to, you guys to expound on it. If names can be removed from the book of life, does this contradict the doctrine of election and not being able to lose our salvation? I
5: Psalm, Psalm 69. So I, believe it was so Psalm I think 69,
0: Psalm 69 and then 26. Revelation 3, I know that to one of the churches, Jesus. Yeah. And he doesn't say I will take you out of the book of life in Revelation. He, he makes the promise no, yeah. that he won't. Yeah. Which is a completely different statement of, of saying that I will. So, I mean... I don't think there's an actual contradiction there with the words. I think somebody's having to read into that. Um, But I also think the book that's mentioned in the Old Testament isn't exactly the same. Because what's often like when Moses says, blot me out of your book, he he tends to be referring to um, the book of the covenant, like of Israel. That's the same as being cut off from the people. Blot me out, right? Um, And I think theologically that then grew into something bigger, that there's this, this book that goes back... To you know, the heart of God, and and that's where like those who are going to be saved were written in that book before uh, the beginning of time, right? Those who were not going to be saved weren't. Um, and so it turns out that the book of Moses was talking about is just an earthly version of this greater book. At least that's how I understand it. So I don't even think like pointing out an Old Testament version versus what's in Revelation even ends up being a valid comparison if we're dealing with different things. Um, but, again, even when you look at the words, if they were talking about the same thing, still not a real contradiction.
1: I think most people's problems with Scripture is they don't want to listen to God, um, and they don't want to pursue the truth. They'll find something that they think they can hang their hat on and say, this is the linchpin that proves the entire Bible wrong. Um, and I have I have yet to hear anything that actually does that. Um and uh, every single question that seems to be either, oh, look, Scripture contradicts itself or we know this isn't true uh, archaeologically speaking or mathematically speaking or scientifically speaking, there's, there's always valid answers, but people don't want to pursue them. They'd rather just bury their head in the sand and not really pursue the truth. Um, every, every qualm that people have with Scripture, there's a, there's a valid explanation. They just, they just need to pursue it and um, not just listen to the echo chambers that they often find themselves in. And that goes for us, too. And I would encourage you guys to pursue the truth and uh, not take what we're saying for granted. And uh, make sure that you're, you're pushing hard and you're reasoning and you're asking questions to make sure that you know that you're standing on solid ground. Because for a lot of, especially young people, teenagers, there's gonna, there may come a time in your life when you have a crisis of faith, when you're just at a crossroads and you're thinking, this isn't real. Um, I, I finally heard the argument that is going to deconstruct my faith and undo everything and I am now a full-blown atheist and denier of God, There's gonna, there may come a point in your life where that happens. And that's why the truth of God's Word is there to protect you and guard you, and it serves as a screen to keep, to keep false ideologies out of your mind so that you don't make ship, shipwreck of your faith. And so um, I, I would just say continue to read God's Word, continue to sit under good teaching, um, read counter arguments to what scripture says so that you can understand why the, why it is that people don't believe in, in God um, or they have different ideologies than we do or philosophies so it's good to read the other side to see where they're coming from okay, and to understand them and then to go to scripture what does scripture really have to say and a lot of times their arguments are superficial um, just like the one Steve mentioned um, they're just they just didn't push far enough And yeah.
2: I just want to kind of hit the point about Psalm 69, I've been kind of going through it, and it's important on like anything, is just to understand the context of this psalm. So here's David, he's basically pleading before God, speaking in despair, and he's upset at basically what's happening. So what happens at times, you will say, you know, he's basically saying at the very end of this, let them be erased from the book of life. He is so upset about how he's been struck by them, it's basically almost like he's trying to proclaim a curse against them in a sense. That's what he's saying, not to the eternal reality what's going to happen, He's in despair in his human, human condition, speaking to God. Don't let these guys have a share in the book of life.
0: And you, you have to understand observational language, right? Observational language would be if you're in the pe- community of God, people of God, you're assuming everybody there is part of that book. But we know not all of them are, right? There are going to be tares that are with the wheat. And so a prayer like that could simply be like, Lord, expose those who aren't really of your people observationally, it would look like they're in the book and now they're out of the book. But in reality, they were never actually in the book as, as John, 1 John chapter 2, verse 19 says. And then one more caution just about like, because one thing that Pastor Josh said that I think is really important is about that crisis of faith and, and stuff like that, that sometimes you, you, you hit that point. And two nuggets of hopeful wisdom with this is, is first, Augustine, one of the smartest guys of the ancient world who hated Christianity, and believed everything else you know, he could before it. The, the highest forms of uh, philosophy of that time he clung to. Uh, but eventually he surrendered to Christ because the Holy Spirit got his heart. And he gives good advice. When you think you've come across a contradiction, remember you don't know everything. Okay, God knows everything. You don't. Start with the posture of humility. Not as if you were a judge that could put God on trial. You can't. right? So start with that position of humility. And I think that's a good idea. And then the second thing is to realize that not everything that you think is a contradiction is a contradiction. Some are paradoxes. And a paradox is something to humans that look like a contradiction but can't be denied. For example, in physics, uh, light, right, it's either a wave or it's a particle. Theoretically, it can't be both. And yet physicists say it has to be both because it functions like both. But we don't know why it's both, because this is supposed to be impossible. Mm-hmm. It's a paradox. Yeah. It looks like a contradiction on paper, but they're saying, but both are true. And it goes back to the holding two things in two hands. Yeah. Or another word would be antinomy. Two things that seem that they're at odds with each other, yeah. but they're both true. And that happens a lot in scripture mm-hmm. because we're finite and we don't know all ends. But God does. So to him, there is no paradox. Mm-hmm. But to us, yeah. there's a lot of things that are paradoxes that look contradictory but they're really not and having a humble heart will help you accept that a little more and know that even if I don't get the answer right now to this maybe in time I will
1: yeah the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of humanity that's one of those where people think they're contradictory that God is sovereign over everything well then what do my choices matter well that's not a contradiction it's one of those tension type things that seems to be but it's not same thing with the doctrine of election and the fact that we are to believe and put our faith in Jesus Christ. Well, I mean, how can that be? Well, those are things that, um, those are just a couple surface ones that a lot of Christians struggle with. Um, and some people just throw their hands up and say, well, I can't figure it out. Therefore, I'm gonna ditch the rest of scripture and not be a Christian, period. But
0: And I would much rather start with the assumption that I am now looking at a paradox that I don't yet understand than turn to, oh, God must not be true. Yeah, um, that's just the wrong place to start. Yeah, I oh. mean, people have been trying to point out Bible contradictions yeah. for two thousand years, yep. and yet Christianity's still here. Yeah,
1: oh, one passage of scripture talks about one angel, and then this gospel mentions two. See, there's contradictions. That's not a contradiction. <laughs> okay, it's two different perspectives. You watch a car accident, you'll have two different stories because they're at two different angles. But that doesn't mean it's a contradiction. It was just a different perspective. So, uh, but people don't. People don't try to think like that. They just, they just want to find something that, that is an error or a contra- or a mistake or something so that they can jettison the whole thing. And it's really a, a wicked heart that wants to deny what, what they know is true.
2: And a lot of people don't know the actual definition of a true contradiction either. Yeah, A and non-A. Yeah,
1: A yeah. and non-A. Yeah. I got one question for you. What do you do with all this? All these different questions. All right, 144,000, <laughs> you know, that's describing us truth, Uh, how to talk to transgender people and homosexuals. And what do we do with all this? Do we just store it, or do we allow it to transform our minds, right, and to make us more like Christ? Um, Correct doctrine, of course, with godliness, Scripture says, right? So this is to transform us, not just equip us with right answers so that we know more or so that we can just, boom, give people the right answer. I beat you with my right answer. Right, We want to take what we know and be equipped, and that's hopefully what this is uh, accomplishing in your life so that you can be servants of Christ and lovers of Jesus, better worshipers. Hopefully something tonight helped you understand your salvation better. Maybe it helped you to evangelize better or to serve better, but allow the answers and the questions that you brought to us and we're, we talked about to to change something in you. Okay, If you walk out of here the same that you came in, You just left with more information and are now accountable to do something with that. So we stand before God accountable for what we now know. You with me? So let's be lovers of God and livers, uh, not livers, but uh, living out his word, okay?
0: That's like eating at a buffet and then not working it off. (laughs) You know, you go work out, that buffet becomes muscle. You don't work out, that buffet becomes something else, yeah. And so we don't want anybody, we don't want spiritual couch potatoes. <laughs> that doesn't yeah, help. Yeah. So do we on. want to take a couple more? I think we're, well.
1: Uh, there was, uh, fantasy, you want to we'll throw one?
2: It's, it's not, not good. Easy I think it's easy All right. Easy doesn't mean quick.
3: If it's easy, I won't say anything. <laughs> we'll let Fantasy ask. <laughs>
1: fantasy, go first. You're in person. So how do we know that Christianity is like the right religion? Because all
0: the other ones are false. <laughs> so, so, so here's the thing. I, I wrote a book on this, but I wouldn't recommend getting it yet because I got a better version that I'm working on that will be done soon. But the fast answer is because of the impossibility of the contrary. And what I mean by that is if Christianity is not true, then nothing's true. So you, so you have to ask yourself this. like... For you to even ask that question, what has to be true? Well, what has to be true is that you have to exist, I have to exist, your words have to have real meaning, right? And, and then my words have to have real meaning. And for that to happen, that means there has to be logic. But for logic to exist, logic isn't made out of matter. I can't pull logic out of the closet, I can't cook it, I can't shoot it in the head, right? So we're using this immaterial, I guess, series of laws of thought to even be able to communicate, right? And on top of that, so, so you have to ask like, what would have to be true for that to exist? Could a random universe that's only of matter produce a perfect set of immaterial laws that every single person taps into whenever they want? No. Another question would be like, okay, if I drop this bottle, it's going to keep falling. The same speed every time. It's not like on the fourth drop, it's going to do a figure eight and tag me in the forehead. Why? Because obviously there's a uniformity of nature, right? Everything in nature... Is, is set and calibrated to where it operates in predictable law. That's called predication. Okay, if the universe was random, okay, then where do we get uniform laws? Right? Can randomness ever produce uniformity? No. If the universe was random, there would be no uniformity. So again, what would have to be true? What could account for uniformity what could, of, of nature? What could account for the laws of logic? What could account for morals? everybody's moral in some way or another. Okay, my point is evolution can't account for that and the atheist universe can't account for that and then you start looking at other religions. Can they account for that? No, the only thing that can account for this is if you have a sovereign creator that is distinct or outside of the creation, okay, so he's an absolute person, not impersonal, he's a person, okay, sovereign, There's he's different from the creation itself and he's triune, and of course, to unpack that would take me a while. But you look at all the other religions in the world, their ultimate reality is impersonal, not personal, right? We're persons here. Can persons come from that which is impersonal? So for example, we've seen people make tractors, but have we ever seen a tractor make a person? We've seen people make farms. Have we ever seen a farm make a person? Okay, so the thing is, what, what every other religion out there tries to say is there was this ultimate impersonal reality and out of it came persons, but in life, we only see the opposite. Persons come from persons. So there's just like, when you actually get down to it and you look at the claims of every religion, they're riddled with contradictions. They can't account for the, what we call the preconditions of intelligibility, what I just said, logic, uniformity of nature, moral absolutes. They can't account for any of that. Um, and so because of that, when you run that test against every other religion and worldview, they all fail miserably. But when you take that same test and apply it to Christianity, all of a sudden we are the only ones with a worldview and a God that can meet all those preconditions of intelligibility. And I don't know if that made sense, but I think that's the only honest way to answer that because you're never going to answer it by saying, well, we got more evidence than they do. Um, Because again, people interpret evidence. They're going to reject our evidence. We're going to reject their evidence because really what it is, is it's narrative building. So, yeah.
2: And, say, and you, you, you listen to those that have a different worldview, but the second you hear them borrow from the Christian worldview, it shows that their worldview is, is failed. And Maybe. they all have to borrow. From they, all, they all have to, all the time. Yeah.
1: There's a couple of things I would say on the spiritual side. Ultimately, it's the Lord who convinces us that Scripture is true. Um, Jesus did uh, make a very uh, bold statement when he said, no one comes to the Father but by him, and he's the way, the truth, and the life. And so by that statement... He said there's nobody that gets to God except through him. And therefore, he basically said any other religion or philosophy or anything that's counter to anything he taught would be uh, rendered false and, and not good. And so he put that, he put that limit on us. Um, and therefore, um, if, if we can just isolate Jesus and look at him for a little while, um, we can decide whether his, his statement is absurd in there are many ways or if he's legitimate. Um, and so one of the things that's, um, that we're called to do is we're called to preach Christ to people, right? We are called to preach the law of God and help people to see that they're sinners. And God uses his law to slice through the callous heart that people have. And we're called to preach the, the death and resurrection of Christ, okay? This is, this is the fundamental truth. This is what Paul aimed to preach all the time. And so... Uh, in doing so, we want to help people to see that there is a man who was crucified, buried, and risen again. And if Christ is not risen, then the entire Scripture is wasted. It's, a po- it's pointless. It's in vain. Everything that Paul is preaching is in vain. Therefore, if we can establish at least the resurrection, we can say that, at least from our perspective, that we know that the entirety of Scripture is true, that the, that the Old Testament that Paul was preaching from is valid, um, and we know that Jesus prophesied his resurrection, Jesus knew people's thoughts, that there's something extraordinary about Jesus because he said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it again, and he was speaking of his life. I mean, who, who can say, kill me, and in three days I will come back to life other than the author of life? So uh, his claims are absurd or they are true, and the fact that he came back to life substantiates that he is able to create life and thus prove that he is the creator himself. And so um, understanding um, you know, the fact that we got to preach that gospel, and by that gospel and that word, that's what calls people to life so they can believe it, but also uh, helping them to see that Christ did rise from the dead. And we've gone through that many times, many of the apologetic evidences of Christ's resurrection. And so really the, the rest, death and resurrection of Christ, or the resurrection, is, is the linchpin of Christianity. If it didn't happen, everything else is a waste. And so hopefully that adds to the things that Steve said, um, but we definitely know that it's the Word of God that can bring people to life to believe what Scripture says about Jesus and cling to Him for salvation.
0: John, you want to finish it with the YouTube one? And and let me just throw a disclaimer out there. We actually have a pretty big turnout of people here live, and so that's why we haven't been able to get to all this, because there's a couple on Facebook that we're just not going to be able to get to, and so we apologize for that uh, But also, at the same time, we're happy we had a great turnout here. All right, so John's got the last one.
3: All right, so this is from Manuel. He wants to know, what would be your advice to a 22-year-old who is still in college and is a bit overwhelmed because he has been designated as a teen leader?
0: At his church?
3: I'm assuming so.
0: Okay, because, yeah. I mean, I don't know if universities are like you, sir, or a teen leader. You yeah, I mean? would imagine at a church, yeah. yeah. Okay. You kind of live that life, right?
1: <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure. I, um, he's
3: overwhelmed. I'm assuming he's overwhelmed with school. It says he's 22 years old in college. His church and church is him a, a team leader. A team what? or team? Team,
0: like leader of the teens, oh, right? And, yeah. yeah.
1: Well,. Uh, <laughs> His advice is that he's overwhelmed. What does he do?
3: Yeah, he's overwhelmed. He just wants some advice, maybe some encouragement. Hang in there. Yeah. Hang in there. It gets worse. No, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, listen,
1: uh, I, I feel for you. Um, I, I, st- I started, uh, I was married at the age of 20, uh, working 45 hours a week at Pizza Hut while going to college full-time, teaching kids' class at church. And then after that, I started working at a summer camp, and it was uh, 8 in the morning until midnight, nonstop, five days a week, and then preaching at a church trying to get a job as a youth pastor on Sundays. Don't ask me where I found time to create a sermon during that time. And uh, ever since then, I've been in ministry and in the car car business. It's just life is busy, and um, uh, it's we live in um, a—this isn't to put anybody down, but we live in a generation— where, where a lot of young people are not prepared for what adulthood might look like. And they're taking on responsibility later and later in life, and maybe they were never taught it when they were young. And so these, these new realities, a lot of people call it adulting. <laughs> I'm adulting now. I, I got my first checkbook. A checkbook? What's that? Right? Uh, nobody uses checks anymore. Ah, I'm a boomer, I guess. But anyway, all that aside, um, it, it's, it's, it, they're growing pains. You're being stretched now for probably greater responsibility. And so the, the anxiety, the, the worry, the stress that you're feeling is there to stretch you so that hopefully when things calm down a little bit, they don't feel as bad. And I, I I, would just say that there's probably coming times when things get even more strenuous and you have an added responsibility, and then what you're doing now won't feel so bad. It's like lifting weights. Um, so... Um, number one, if you're feeling anxious about it, I would say cast all your cares upon Jesus, okay? But I would also make sure that you spend time acknowledging the way that God has provided for you and, and been a, a blessing to you so that when you bring these cares, you, you can see his faithfulness and that he'll help you through these things. Um, and uh, I would just recognize that there are seasons of life, too, where things are more busy than others. Um, so this may be a short-term, hectic, crazy life, and it may mellow out a little bit and then get crazy again. But um, it's, I don't know how to make the anxiety or, um, I don't know, you can't make busyness go away. That's just part of growing up. We're called to impact this world, and we're called to impact it in a lot of ways. And so sometimes as Christians, we just got to bear down and work while it's still light. Right, until and, and the, uh, the Lord comes, and then we'll have our eternal rest. Um, but uh, it's just—it's part of being an adult, yeah. and it's—it's uh, it's not easy. And um, I don't know what else to say. It's just—I
4: think that was perfect.
1: We—we're we, stretched thin yeah. all the time. I know I don't look thin, but we're stretched. <laughs> we're stretched thin. If—if if you don't believe me, you can ask my wife. Um, and she can tell you how stretched thin things are sometimes. And if, if you have kids, uh, you're stretched thin. If you serve at the church, you're stretched thin. Uh, there are people that serve three or four ministries, and they work, and they're married, and they have kids. And I would love to go back to college when it was just school <laughs> and and work and marriage. And uh, the one class I was teaching at church, cause, uh, but the Lord used that to stretch me, and I, I'm doing probably three times the amount of stuff I was doing when I was 20 years old.
0: Yeah, he's going to build more pro- productivity out of you. It's like anything else. You start lifting weights, you can't lift a lot. But over the course of time, you get stronger, you could lift more, you could do more. Or if you're a runner, eventually you're able to run further, faster, all that kind of stuff. And I think life is the same way, that the Lord, through this busyness right now, it might seem overwhelming. But if you endure, and of course, if you're doing this for Him... Ten years from now, you might look back on this, as Pastor Josh was saying, and say, oh, that wasn't bad at all. What I'm doing now is even more. And that's just God. That's what he does. He grows us and he prepares us um, to do more um, and just try to keep your priorities right. Um, It's real easy for us in the midst of busyness to put our families last. We can't do that. Mm -hmm. I know I failed a lot at that. Um, So just uh, do your best to to God, family, then all that stuff, and just do what you can. What you get done is what you get done. Yeah. Right, And then uh, just keep working away at it God yeah. will take care of it
1: And just remember if you're a believer this is part of the fall Where chaos is <laughs> It's not supposed to be like this The Lord had an <coughs> ideal way And we know that that ideal way of living is coming Where we won't feel so frantic you know, We'll be working in the new creation And enjoying each other's friendships And helping each other uh, do whatever God will have us doing In this, in this new creation with him um, But rest is coming so it's temporary.
0: Pastor Josh, would you like to close yep. this Q&A in prayer?